Hey there. Would you like to make more money? Of course, we all would. Well, stick with us, and over the next hour, we'll give you examples of some of the worst financial scams in history. I mean, ways to make money. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunla, and with me today, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke. I want to talk about shrimp. No, you don't. No, I do. No, you don't. I do, and I'm about to. Okay. And no one can stop me. <laughs> I'll try. Yeah, yeah, you will not succeed. But I'm not talking about the official Uncover-Up shrimp. Right, which I'm sitting next to. Yeah, who are doing very well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> no, I'm going to talk about a kind of shrimp called the pistol shrimp, and it's a fascinating little animal for a bunch of reasons. Okay. One, it's a shrimp. It's got a cool name. It's got a cool name, and it's a shrimp, so already we're on like firm footing as far as this being a cool animal. Two, it has a defense mechanism in which it rapidly closes its claw, which causes like an underwater shockwave that stuns its prey and discourages predators. Okay. Like, it's apparently one of the loudest noises in the ocean. Really? Louder than whales. No. Yes. How big is this thing? Really tiny. See? It's interesting already. I'm skeptical. And uh, you're going to get more skeptical because I'm not at the interesting part yet. Okay, okay. It lives in a cooperative relationship with a totally different kind of animal, the goby fish. Okay. So there's lots of dangers in the ocean. It's a dangerous place. That's yep. why I don't live there. <laughs> okay. And there's a lot of dangers facing the little goby and the little shrimp in this big mean place. Because they both have serious weaknesses. The goby can't dig itself a hole to hide in, and the shrimp can't see very well. Okay. But, and you can see where this is going, yep. the goby has great big eyeballs, and the shrimp is a very good construction worker. Okay. It's a match made in heaven. It is. Well, or It's in kind a, of adorable. It is, it is adorable, and I actually encourage people to watch videos on this on YouTube. It's a match made in evolution. That's sweet. So each goby gets itself a shrimp, and vice versa. The shrimp digs a hole while the goby watches out for danger. And if the goby sees something with its big eyeballs, it'll slap the shrimp. And the shrimp will run into the hole, and the goby swims into the hole, and they both hunker down in there until the danger is gone. Cool. If the shrimp goes out too far, the goby will like go out and find it and direct it back to the hole. Ah, this is just adorable. It is adorable. And from a biological perspective, what kind of relationship is this? Symbiotic. It is a symbiotic relationship since both organisms are benefiting from the other. I didn't even study today. Yeah. And, and it was, here I come just with symbiotic yeah, right there. Coming in hot. And that's great. And I, it would make me so happy if we just spent the rest of this episode talking about symbiotic relationships. So I was thinking that we are doing a conspiracy podcast. What is the connection, assuming we are not talking all day about goby fish and pistol shrimp? I could. <laughs> I know you could. So that's why I'm gently leading you towards uh, our topic today, which is... Well, now I want to talk about another ocean animal. Oh, okay. The... Is it as cute as this one? No, it's the exact opposite. Okay. Uh, this will haunt your dreams. <laughs> uh, even hearing about this basically curses you now, okay. and your life will be slightly worse. This thing is the Cymothoa exigua, or the tongue-eating louse. Oh. It looks like an underwater version of the potato bugs that live in the garden. 
You know those little guys? Yeah. Little pill bugs. They're kind of yeah, yeah, cute. Yeah. But what this does is it swims around until it finds a fish big enough to crawl into the mouth of, whereupon it eats the tongue of the unlucky fish and attaches itself where the tongue was. Oh my god. It, it, this exists? It becomes the fish's tongue. So if you open the fish's mouth, instead of seeing a fish tongue, you see this little creature being I a tongue. I have to ask. Have there been any reported cases of this happening to humans? No, because we don't have gills. Okay. So it's fine. So it is fine. Yeah. I also, feel... we have hands. And we if something was eating our tongue, we'd reach into our mouths and be like, get out of there, you. Right. Okay. Fish don't have hands. Ah, this is why this works on fish. Yes. I get it. Okay. So then, every time the fish eats something, this tongue-eating louse is sitting there in the fish's mouth, stealing food before it goes down the fish's throat. Now, what kind of relationship is this? That is parasitic. That is a parasitic relationship because one organism is benefiting from the other organism without giving anything back in return. And that, tragically, is the kind of relationship we're talking about today. Since the conspiracy world is full of the human version of the tongue-eating louse. The financial scammer parasite. You, that's, you have a way with images. Financial scammers. That's our topic. Yep. Financial scams. Uh, and specifically and, how they relate to conspiracy communities. And, and I think your thesis is that uh, members in certain conspiratorial communities are specifically targeted and turn out to be groups of victims for financial scams. Is that right? Yeah. And you've been here, you got here about an hour ago to yeah. the bunker. And just in that time period, you saw it happen in real time, in real life. Yeah. So Nathan has been doing some undercover work and he showed me his phone while uh, we were just talking about um, the upcoming episode uh, to show me the uh, feed of the kind of stuff he's been on, what people have been posting, how people have been replying. And as I was looking at his phone, he got a message from a woman named... Mary. Mary. Mary, no last name given. Mary, no last name. Very pretty picture. And I thought that I had maybe intruded accidentally upon a text I shouldn't have seen. So I quickly gave Nathan his phone back. But it was, in fact, somebody who was approaching you to scam you out of money, right? And we are, as we are now recording, Nathan is checking his phone every now and then to see at what stage in the scam uh, we're in. Do you want to read actually what she's what the last text is? So we did some preliminary hellos. How are you? Nathan is operating under a pseudonym on this. Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is not my first rodeo. <laughs> okay, so there was a quick hello, hello. How are you? I said I'm great. Uh, she asked where I was from. I lied because again, I'm not going to give personal information right, on the right, internet. Right. Uh, we talked back and forth. She told me I was looking good. And so I, I wanted to believe her. But of, of course, I've also, I haven't used my actual picture. So what she's actually saying is that Harry Houdini looks good. Oh, is that the picture you used? That's well the done. picture I used. Uh, I told her she was looking good too. Uh, blah, blah, blah. This has been going on now for this conversation for about five minutes. And then at the five minute mark, she tells me that she works for a company, a cryptocurrency company. Okay. I say, oh, I just have a boring office job. What's this company you're, you're with? And then she immediately starts trying to push this link on me. And I'm saying, well, but what is it? Right. And then she asked me, are you crypto oriented? Uh -huh. Which she thought was hilarious. And I said, well, well, I, I don't know much about it. I'd like to, I guess. 
And so then she's telling me I can make 50% profit through a Bitcoin investment in a single day, in 24 hours. Uh-huh. And then she has now shared the link. And I have not clicked it because okay. I don't want to have to throw my phone out. Right, right. This is not the only one of these conversations I've had since I've joined up with this community. Uh-huh. In fact, so much that happens on this community. And it, if you're curious, uh, it's we haven't done an episode on this. We did a radio show about it. Yeah. There is a group of people who believe that there is a woman named Romana Didolo, who is the queen of Canada. <laughs> and also an alien. Right. And uh, a bunch of her followers tried to take over the town of Peterborough, Ontario, by attacking the police station. It was a whole thing. And that was when I decided we need to look into this group. Right. It, it's it's like tragic because, I mean, when I first joined, immediately I got a bunch of messages from people on this on this app, and I thought, oh, what a friendly community this is, and yeah. and of course we wouldn't be surprised by that. That's one of the reasons people join up with conspiracy communities is because of the camaraderie. Yeah, the camaraderie the, and so the community. So I, at first I thought that's what it was. Yeah. But almost immediately I realized, oh, this is a friendly community in the way that a pond full of leeches is a friendly community. <laughs> they pay attention to you, yeah, but not in the way you want, maybe. No, exactly. Okay, so we're talking about financial scams, especially targeting um, conspiratorial communities. Did you want to start by talking about the scams or the communities? Let's start off by talking about some of the scams. This episode will be a few chapters. Okay. And each chapter will be a different financial scam. And each financial scam, I think we can learn something from. They're all a little bit different, but they share some things in common. Okay. So I want to start off with, I think, the most famous financial scheme of all time. Yeah. uh, Which is something that is named after a person. Now... When you have something named after you, that's either good or bad news. <laughs> like if you're Dr. Heimlich, yep. it's good news. Good news. Way to go, buddy. You've yeah. like prevented people from choking, and we, we mention you all the time. If your name, on the other hand, is Charles Ponzi, mm. that's less good news for you. Yep. Because, of course, what do we have that is named after Charles Ponzi? Well, it's the Ponzi scheme, and this is a certain way of... Well, basically defrauding people. Yeah. By by suggesting that they're say they're well, okay. You know, why don't you explain it? Because you've got the notes in front of you. Got a ton of notes. All right. What is the Ponzi scheme? Well, have you ever uh, received a chain letter or a chain letter email? Yep. The idea behind a chain letter is that, like, you get one and then you have to send it out to ten people, and right. then they each have to send it out to ten people, and they all have to send it out to ten people. If you actually go through with this. That's a very quick way of sending a lot of information out in this exponential fashion. Yeah. And exponential growth is really, really surprising. Yep. Like if you double something, you start at one, double it to two, two to four, you reach sort of astronomical levels in very short amounts of doubling. Yeah. And that's doubling. And this is normally like tenfolding. Yeah. So yeah, ex- exponential growth, that's a lot of power there. So what if all of those people who got a letter also sent you a dollar. Mm. That would be amazing. If you were early on, like that would be a lot of people sending you a dollar. And so there would be this this sort of tremendous incentive to get in on this amazing, in fact, you should get in on my chain letter scheme. Yeah, okay. Because that's the idea, that for a, a little initial investment, you get a huge return if you get in at the right time. So the guy the scheme's named after is Charles Ponzi. He didn't invent it. 
But he was a famous example of it, and so it became named after him. Okay. So back in January of 1920, he was a slick and charismatic fast talker who was promising a 100% return on investments in just 90 days, which sounds almost too good to be true. Yeah. So just to be clear here, if I invested 10 bucks, I would get my original 10 plus another 10. Yeah, you invest 1,000, you get 2,000 in 90 days. That's I mean, a good investment. That's a, if, if that would work, that would be fantastic. Yeah, if it would work. So <laughs> how? what are like the nuts and bolts of his particular scheme? He said what he would do is buy international stamps from Italy. Okay. Where they were extremely cheap after the collapse of the Italian economy after World War I. Then he would exchange those cheap Italian stamps for expensive American stamps. And then everyone who invested would make a big profit. So... You could exchange the stamps one for one, but they would be worth more. That's the idea. Okay. And then you could sell the more expensive stamps. Okay. So I buy a cheap Italian stamp, exchange it for an American stamp, sell the American stamp, and... And this, sorry, just for the nuts and bolts, not that I want to invest in this, but why is the American post office going... Like, what do they do with Italian stamps? Well, you've already asked too many questions. Right, okay. (laughs) Although the first people who invested did get their promised return. Ah, yeah. Well, that does sometimes happen with the Ponzi scheme, right? By the summer of 1920, and that was half a year later, Mm -hmm. Ponzi had bought himself a mansion, and people were investing with him to the tune of about a million dollars a day. A million 1920s dollars. Wow. That's about 15 million in today money. He had so much money coming in that he brought a controlling interest in a bank in Boston with some of his wealth. Like, that's how much money he's getting. And because this is such an amazing opportunity that we all have to take advantage of, people were mortgaging their houses. They were giving Ponzi their life savings in the hopes of becoming rich. Yep. And on the surface, it looks like things are going swimmingly. But as you've already pointed out, this is a system that cannot survive. Mm. Because Ponzi hadn't actually figured out a way to exchange international stamps for other stamps. Okay. And he hadn't also figured out a way to exchange those stamps for money. All right. Okay. Instead, the money that he had paid out to the early investors was just money that had been given to him by the later investors. Right. Uh, You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. You're using one of your credit cards to pay your other credit card bill. No. You're not generating any new money, and you're only getting deeper and deeper into a hole. This is what Bernie Madoff did. Yeah. Um, so he was a big financial hedge fund manager and personal wealth manager. And you would give your savings to him and he would manage it on your behalf. And he was always able to really outperform the market, even in downturns. Now, if at any point along the way, somebody wanted to get off uh, the gravy train, they, w- they did in fact get paid out. So at no point did it seem like Bernie was doing anything wrong until the financial collapse happened. I think this was 2008, or is that already too late? And At which point, everybody needed their money. And lo and behold, there was no money there. There wasn't any money. He was and just paying people off with money that other people had given him. Exactly. That's exactly what he was doing. And uh, when he did invest, he performed as well as most other investors did. Not much better, not much worse you know, law of statistical averages. I mean, the only thing that Madoff was lucky that Ponzi had already done this, otherwise it would be called a Madoff scheme. Right, right, right. A lot of people lost everything. Yeah, life savings. Or your mom's life savings. You know, that kind of stuff. Like there were people who 
brought their friends and family into it because, and they thought they were doing them a favor because yeah. they had access to this really great wealth manager. Yeah. And yeah, people's lives, people died. Yeah. People died because they couldn't afford healthcare and people died because they took their own lives having their finances completely ruined. Yeah. Like, and those of your friends and family, I mean, that it really is so much worse when you ruin your friends and family oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's terrible and it's parasitic. Yeah. These people are human tongue louses. Yeah. The whole thing that Ponzi was running is just a massive house of cards. He protected himself for a little while by suing anyone who suggested in print that he was running a pyramid scheme. Okay. Which is another word for a Ponzi scheme. So I was going to ask that. Is that the same thing? Yeah. If you imagine a pyramid and like Ponzi's at the top or Madoff's at the top, and then, you know, you, you get new people joining up and new people joining up who pay the people higher up in the pyramid. So by the time you get to the bottom of the pyramid, those people are going to get no money. Right. There's They're the ones who are them. paying the ones above in the pyramid. Exactly. But by the end of the summer, more newspaper stories and editorials started coming out, and this led to Ponzi being investigated by the American government. And the investigation showed, not surprisingly, that Ponzi was massively in debt, had lost most of his investors' money. So he was arrested for larceny and sentenced to prison for five years. Now, the question is, was Ponzi trying to scam, or did he think he had a legitimate scheme and he just sort of got caught up in it? What do you think? I think he was trying to scam because if you don't, have a method by which to convert the stamps into money and you are still collecting a million dollars a day, you know that this is not yeah. working. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you think you can keep all those plates spinning in the air. Yeah, well, this is the thing that I, I find so fascinating about these characters is that they don't just hightail it out of there at some point. Like yeah. six months into it, you're making today's money, $15 million a day. You're so, making it because you're not investing it. So get out, disappear. Get out. Move to a different country. Move to a different country. This is 1920. You can go, you yeah, can nobody's. You could put on a fake here. mustache and yeah. no one's ever going to know you. <laughs> exactly. And with that kind of money in, you know, some other country, you can, you can just... Yeah, you know, go to Panama. Go anywhere. Exactly. But there was still more money to be like taken from these people. And I think you show some good insight in guessing that Ponzi was probably a deliberate scammer mm. because he was sentenced to prison for five years, but it gets out a little bit early on bail during an appeal. And while he's out on bail waiting for the appeal, he starts selling swampland in Florida, claiming it was valuable seaside real estate. <laughs> and some of these properties were literally underwater. Right. So yeah, he's a scammer. He gets charged again. He tries to flee to Mussolini's Italy. Yeah, too so late now. now. He's gonna, now he's going to leave. But he gets arrested and thrown back in prison. His investors eventually get about 30 cents on the dollar. And he dies in prison. Okay. But there was, like a, there was an official program to try to get people back their money, but you had to apply for it. And a lot of people didn't apply for it. Even after he died... There were people who were like, no, 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 I think this is still going to pay off. Oh, no. This is still, like, I'm still going to get my initial money back. They still believed it, eh? Yeah. What do we call that when somebody's, like, they've made a bad bet, but they're holding on to that bad bet because rather than being worried about the money that they still have, that they could get back, they're thinking about the money they've lost and trying to reclaim that. That is the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, and... The sunk cost fallacy, how important is that to things like conspiracy theories in general? Well, I, you know, it's one of those interesting psychological motivators that 
keep people trapped in what objectively seems like a very irrational situation. I think often about failed relationships. And you're like, well, I've been with this person for this long. I mean, it's um, terrible now, but, but I, I got to stay in it. Yeah, but I think you also think I can make it better and therefore right. recoup this lost time. If I leave now, it's all gone. It's 20 years of my life gone. Yeah. And this keeps people in bad relationships. It keeps people in bad relationships. That's all of us. We right. all have these tendencies towards sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. And this is a thing that scammers know. They know we have these weaknesses, and scammers are good at hacking into those weaknesses to figure mm. out ways to take advantage of us. You know, what's amazing is even after he was dead, people still tried to communicate with him oh. through Ouija boards right. in order to find out when their money was going to show up. Right. <sighs> so that's chapter one. Sort of chapter 11, waka waka. Ugh. Bad joke. So chapter two. The Omega Trust. It's got trust right in the name. This is going to be fine. <laughs> 1994, an electrician from Illinois named Clyde Hood claimed that while he was visiting Hong Kong, he received a very special message from a very special being. Okay. God. Ah. So this sort of thing, what do we call it when you get information straight from a supernatural being or deity right to your brain? What do we call that? As this is revealed knowledge. Hey, listen, I am acing the Uncover Up quiz this yeah, morning. Yeah, somebody's clearly been paying attention right? to our episodes. And it's Lee. <laughs> so revealed knowledge, that's great. Because yes. you're getting, like, what could be more pure knowledge than that? Supernatural entity, a god, an alien, a spirit, a ghost, a something is just funneling information right into your head. There's no middle person there. Right. Fantastic. Tell me, what's wrong with revealed knowledge? Oh. Nothing. Uh, great. <laughs> that, that's great. That's one of those questions. I mean, well, it's not testable. Oh, yeah, right. It's, it can, it's, and, and it's not tethered to reason or to uh, empirical experiences. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this a bunch of times. Uh, I mean, often you see it featured in cults. Yeah. When you have a cult leader, they claim to have revealed knowledge. We saw this with like Amshin Rikyo. We're going to yep. see it again when we eventually build up the courage to do Heaven's Gate. Yep. So that's that's a clear danger. We also saw it in the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. With, with what was it called? Phantom Testimony? Oh, um, just give me a sec. Spectral. Spectral. Spectral yeah. Testimony. A spectral, was it? Evidence. Spectral, Spectral evidence, evidence yeah. is what it was called. Yeah. Whereas you could be like, oh, this ghost said you did it. Right. Like, oh, man. <laughs> Can you prove there's a ghost there? No. So already there's trouble. This is backed by revealed knowledge. Mm. But at the same time, revealed knowledge from our perspective has some serious issues with it. For a lot of people, it's really appealing mm. because it seems more true than empirical knowledge. Yeah. So with this revealed knowledge, Clyde Hood forms a corporation named Omega Trust and Trading Limited and claimed that for an initial $100 investment, you would receive $5,100 within 275 days. So here's, here's the pitch. Let me give you the pitch okay, first. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I'm already buying. Yeah, you're already in. So according to the revealed knowledge Hood got from God, there are secret investment banks in the world. Ah, uh that provide massive returns on investments, but the average person like you or me, Joe Sixpack, uh, <laughs> we don't know about them and we don't have the millions of dollars needed to have access to them. Yeah, of course. So you send Clyde Hood money. 
he would pool it with other investors and then that would he would use that large sum to buy into the secret hidden banking system given everybody like a share oh so is this an early hedge fund yeah it's sort of, yeah exactly <laughs> except with the, some magic and made up and stuff. some magic and some revealed knowledge now there was a very specific way he wanted the money sent because you have to do this through the through like you have to send him packages of money. Okay. It's 1994. But he claimed that the U.S. government was trying to prevent people from getting in on this amazing opportunity, because yes. of course they are. So you had to make sure that your money couldn't be traced or tracked, so you had to use private couriers instead of the post office. That's one thing. This and, guy's clever. Oh, it's super clever. And you had to wrap your money up in the one material that no government microwaves could penetrate. Tinfoil. Yes, tinfoil. You had to wrap your money up in tinfoil. You are acing this today. And Lee didn't prepare at all for this episode. No, I was told not to, and, and here I am. Apparently you don't need to prepare. <laughs> Maybe I'm better if I don't, Yeah, actually. So you had to give your money a little tinfoil hat. Yeah, I love it. But this was not a Ponzi scheme. Okay. But it's not a Ponzi scheme because rather than using later investors' money to pay off the earlier investor, Hood just kept everybody's money and didn't pay anyone anything. Oh, so it's just a scam. Yeah, so it's not a pyramid, it's a pit. Right. <laughs> it's just you're throwing money into the pit, and he's at the way, bottom, like, rubbing it on himself. In a way, it's a little more honest. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, it's just like, and I like, I mean, this is, it's funny that we become sort of connoisseurs of scams, too. I also like that it's just a hundred bucks. Yeah, a hundred bucks in 1994. So, well, that's a very specific amount of money, right? Yeah. It's an amount of money that the average person could probably maybe stand to lose yeah no you could i mean like i it would suck yeah but it's not the kind of thing where you're going to have to like think about your mom's medication or whether you have to sell your house like you, yeah i mean even is, in 1994 uh dollars like 100 bucks you you wouldn't even have to tell your partner 500 bucks yeah even if it's 500 bucks that's getting up there yeah uh, but it's not the ruin your life kind of money no it's not like the the actual uh, Ponzi scheme by Mr. Ponzi, where people are mortgaging, yeah. taking, you know, selling their house and trying to double their money. And um, I like it so far. Yeah. Well, so he was getting uh, he was getting new investors for a year. Okay. This was the deal. Only for one year. You have to get in for a limited time. And uh, he was also like milking people for more than the initial one hundred dollar investment at some point because once he got you sort of hooked in, uh, okay. So he does. Then you're on the mailing list, and then he can like suggest, oh, maybe you want to get a little bit more of this. Right. Maybe you want to get a bit more of this. And at this point, he's getting something in the area of like ten million dollars. That's how much he's gathered: ten million dollars from people. And two hundred seventy-five days passed. Do you think they got paid back? No. That was an easy one. Yeah. But Clyde started making a lot of excuses why none of the investors had received any money from their investments. Five years pass. Okay. Nobody's seen any of the money. But what they got instead were frequent newsletters from Hood claiming that the money was just around the corner. Yeah. And it would be released as soon as some nameless, unforeseen complication was cleared up. Right. A lesson that we have to learn from the Omega Trust. Clyde Hood pitched this at a very specific group of people. Okay. He pitched it specifically at fundamentalist Christians. Oh. And you can see why. Because for one thing, he claims to have gotten the information from God. Ah, right, of course. Now, he's, he's not pitching this at people in the United Church or even Catholics who, mm. as, as part of their belief system, they don't necessarily have that kind of direct godly communication right. going on. 
But for fundamentalist Christians, that's, that's a community that has a lot of prophets in it, a lot of modern-day prophets. Like a lot of Christianity, the prophets are in the Bible, but if some new person shows up and is like, hey, I'm a prophet too, you don't necessarily believe them. But in this community that he was pitching to, it was a community filled with people who claimed to be prophets. And so he was just another one of the prophets that people would have encountered. What's another aspect, like what's another thing about fundamentalist Christianity that he thinks, this is going to help me convince these people to send me money? Mm. So what is a characteristic, what's a quality amongst fundamentalists that would make them more vulnerable to something like this? Is it the end times? Yeah. I mean, they already Did I have, get it right? You got another one right. They All already right. have in them this idea that things can can change like dramatically all of the sudden in a way that's preordained. Right. Okay. And of course, I mean, he's playing into the idea that, okay, the money hasn't shown up yet, but you know what you need to have? You faith. just need to have faith. Faith. Yep. You need to have faith and your faith is going to be rewarded in time. Right. I mean, that in a sense maps onto the basic narrative of Christianity and fundamentalist Christianity especially, which is uh, the second coming any day now, yep. but not yet. So not yet. have faith. And then prophets come by and say, end. it's going to be, you know, it's going to be any 1844. Yeah. And then it doesn't, it's not 1844. Oh, it's going to be like 2014 and it's not and so on. But you've got to hold to the faith. So this is interesting that already here with a fundamentalist community, we're starting to see why certain communities become more susceptible, potentially, why the same scam might not work as easily with Catholics, even though they're Christians and Americans, might not work so well there as it does with this community that's already gotten a certain type of ideological elements in place. Yeah, and you could think of a scam that would work for Catholics. Right. You'd have to be like, okay, maybe something more to do with like central authority. Yeah, and guilt. And guilt. You could think of scams that would appeal to atheists. Yeah. Like you could engineer scams. So we're not saying that like fundamentalists are necessarily more prone to all scams. They right. were more prone to this scam. This one, because it mapped onto a pre-existing ideology in a way. How would you appeal, like how would you use a, run a scam that appealed to atheists? Oh, it's got to, I've been thinking about this, got to be something to do with like... Oh, smugness yeah i well <laughs> right. i don't even want to go down this road i was gonna say like the atheists already have <sighs> I'm not gonna... oh no no i gotta know what are you well, gonna say it's gonna be it's gonna be about the singularity oh so something technological oh yeah some technological it's utopianism right oh that is a good one for the atheists right so this is turning into a how-to yeah <laughs> how to run scams on different groups of on different people different groups of people mm-hmm so, How do they? That's true, actually. Let's think about that just for hmm, a moment. Sure. Like, what are those elements? Like, what are you looking for in an ideological community? Is it how they see themselves? How they want to see themselves. How they want to see themselves. Okay, what what so, they consider to be like a virtue. Okay. So you, you use look, that against them. So you, okay, okay, okay. So you look at a group, you see what, how do you imagine yourself? And I'm going to create a scam in which you get to see that mirrored back to you in a way that offers some kind of reward as a result. Yeah. Okay. What happens to Hood, instead of ever paying anybody back, is that he gets arrested. Okay. He gets convicted, gets thrown in prison for fraud, money laundering, and tax evasion. But rather than convincing the investors that this was evidence that the whole thing was a scam all along, 
sunk cost fallacy kicks in. And what do you think his arrest makes people think? Well, again, now actually I'm thinking about Soviet disinformation. And the key is to make the denial part of the underlying part of the narrative. And so here, if he's saying the American government is trying to keep us out of these secret banks, the fact that he gets arrested by the quote-unquote American government legitimates. I like this guy's scam. I mean, I'm really like... It's amazing. I'm kind of impressed with with how he's like gamed this community's ideology. Yeah, this is the danger. This is why we're always going on and on. This is why I force my students to do two weeks of Venn diagrams. Yeah. And for those of them who listen, I apologize. I know that was a lot of circles, but it's partially why. So we have to train our brains to think more carefully and critically. So... Yeah, exactly as you say, the arrest of Hood convinced a lot of his followers, oh, this is evidence that he was onto something. The shadowy figures who control everything, the international bankers, wink, wink, the Illuminati, the lizard people, the whoever. Right. They had Hood arrested because he was onto something. The fact that he was sent to prison for fraud made people believe him more. Hmm. Unfortunately, uh, he died in prison in 2012, so he wasn't able to benefit from that. But there's a lot of Omega investors who are still sitting out there waiting for their windfalls. What happened to the money after he got arrested? Because I know that in a lot of cases, it's actually really hard to get the money back. Well, again, the government seizes a lot of it and they say, okay, if you were taking advantage of this scam, you can reclaim some percentage of it. You can't get your entire investment, but huh. you can like get some of what's left. And a remarkably small number of people did that. And you could say they didn't want to admit they were scammed, but I think more likely, based on what I've what I've seen uh, from some of these people's comments and some of their correspondence, the reason they didn't do that is because they were worried that if they did that, they wouldn't get their windfall. Hmm. But they're not going to get it anyway because it's not in that secret bank. Right, because there is no secret bank. Well, yeah, but... Um... The Omega Trust, it didn't exist. Right. The whole thing was a scam. No, but even what I'm thinking is even if you were imagining that your money had been in the secret bank, now that the government has seized it, it is no longer. Yeah. So why not just get it back? Sunk cost fallacy? Mm. Chapter three. (laughs) Okay. Nasara slash Gasara. Okay. So in 1996, a man named Harvey Bernard comes up with a proposal that he thought would repair several problems with the U.S. economy. He thought you abolish the income tax, you raise the sale tax, you get rid of compound interest on loans, you return the currency to the gold and silver standard. Mm -hmm. You know, typical stuff. A lot of people make those kind of arguments. Yep. So he types it up, he makes a few copies, he sends it to Congress in the hopes that they would immediately turn it into law. (laughs) This is the kind of sweet naivete of of non-experts entering into a field of expertise and you are just blissfully unaware of how much knowledge is there, how much process is there. Um, I had a friend who, you know, like decided he had figured out an alternative theory of the beginning of the universe and wanted to send it off to a physics journal. Yeah, it's hilarious, too, that he thought he would send something to Congress. He's like, hey, I've got a good idea. I'll send it to Congress, and then they'll pass a law. It's like, right. yeah, that's how like, the government works. And that's what was missing. It was right. like, oh, where we got everything except a good idea. Yeah. You know, if only somebody had a good idea, then things would get better. Yeah, it's not the, the massive logjam in Congress. So he calls it the National Economic Security and Recovery Act, or NASARA. And to no one's surprise, it was not passed into law. 
So then he, uh, in the year 2000, he distributes the whole thing for free on the internet for anybody who wanted to read it. Yep. One of the people who came across his suggestions was a woman named Shaney Goodwin, who had also been one of the people who had fallen for the Omega Trust scam a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. And she went by the name The Dove of Oneness. Okay. So we've moved outside of fundamentalist Christianity, and where are we now? Sounds like we're into the New Agey scene. We're into the New Agey scene. So she is the Dove of Oneness. So she starts up a website, because we're also in the 2000s. Right. No more direct mailing. And in this website, she claims that Nassara had actually been secretly passed into law by Bill Clinton at gunpoint. Ah. Because he didn't want to do it. Yeah. But it was the right thing to do, so apparently you can hold a gun to the head of the president and he signs a bill? That's not... Politics what, is wild. Yeah, it's not how I imagine it, but okay. So she also added a bunch of things onto what Bernard had initially come up with because she said that this meant that people who were in on the secret, but only those who were in on it, could stop paying their mortgages, stop paying their credit card bills. Mm -hmm. uh, they were all about to become extremely wealthy because of trillions of dollars of prosperity funds that would be released. And part of Nassara was that world peace would be declared, which right. is nice. And again, doesn't really show you how... Doesn't work that way. World peace works or how government <laughs> bills work. It's like, oh, they passed a bill saying that world peace was declared. Right. Well, that's that then. Why didn't this happen? Why didn't we notice it? If all of these amazing transformations had taken place, well, the Dove of Oneness had an explanation. The reforms had been due to be enacted in a supercomputer in the World Trade Center on the morning oh, of... September 11th. 2001. The attacks on the World Trade Center, according to the Dove of Oneness, were actually carried out by, quote, the Dark Agenda, uh -huh. who were a group of evildoers who secretly controlled the world and who were fighting against the, quote, White Knights, okay. who were crusaders of good and who were trying to bring out the truth into the light. Mm. Now, as soon as you hear about this Dark Agenda versus the White Knights, where, where does that send your mind? We are now in the ideological world of Manichaeanism, in which you have an all-powerful good and all-powerful bad uh, that are constantly at war with each other, and the role of humanity is basically to take sides, hopefully with the good, yeah. and then, yeah. Manichaeanism, it, it comes from sort of an old, uh, it was sort of like a competitor for early Christianity. Yeah. And the Manichaeans were wiped out, no. as a lot of competitors were. But what are, what are some issues with this mindset of there is good and there is evil and that's it? Well, it leaves a lot of the in-between stuff undiscussed. I mean, I'm not exactly sure. I know the cartoon versions of what we mean by good and evil. Mm -hmm. But when you actually investigate those concepts, they end up being a lot more nebulous and complicated. What really is evil outside of what do I consider evil from my personal happiness and safety and whatever. And of course, yeah, there's, if you imagine it as a spectrum of black and white, well, what about all the colors? Yeah. You know, what about all the shades and what about all the nuance? And uh, it, it misses a lot of the complexity of what's out there. And if we look historically, like, okay, talk about complexity. World War II, mm. the Allies versus the Axis. Yeah. Now Seems I'm going to make like the argument. Seems like a straightforward good and evil. Yeah, because the Axis are fascist. We've got like fascism in, in Italy and we've got fascism in Germany. We've got like genocidal catastrophe happening yeah. because of the fascist Germans. Yeah. So that's about as clear cut evil as you get. Yeah. 
The problem with World War II and good and evil, though, is who else was on our side? Stalin. Right. So he was a good guy? Right, exactly, for that time, I guess. Right, except he was a monster. Right. And also murderous. Yeah. But he was our monster. Yeah. So was that white hat or was that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like dark agenda. Yeah. Manichaeanism misses a lot of what's really important to understand when you're trying to do a rigorous analysis of social phenomena. Yeah, it's really hard to break the world into there is good people and bad people. We like it. Yeah, because it's that, narratively very satisfying. Yeah. And I think that's a big problem with the way that the news media generally generates a picture of the world is it does it in this Manichaean way, which is narratively satisfying, gets me to buy into the stories, but it doesn't present the information in a way that's useful for us to really understand what's going on. Yeah. I mean, look at the 1980s, and we, we have looked at the 1980s. You have somebody like Gulbid and Hekmatyar, the butcher of Kabul. Yep. Terrible human being, awful human being, evil human being by my standards. Mm -hmm. But in the 1980s, he's getting funded by the CIA because he's fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. So I guess a good guy. So I guess a good guy? Yeah. Except no. At World War II, like we're fighting a tremendous evil in the form of fascism and genocide. But the Americans bomb Nagasaki. Right. And Hiroshima. Yeah. And turn a bunch of people into radioactive ash. Yeah. So it's like, maybe there's just evil? But there's yeah. still... But even then, we can still... Like, it's a mess. It's a mess. And we still have to try to work... We're not saying we abandon the ideas of good and evil. Or are you saying that, Nietzsche? I'm not sure. Maybe for another podcast. <laughs> That'll be quite the podcast. <laughs> but it is appealing to people. And so she's saying, oh, there are bad people and there are good people. I'm right. on the side of the good and the bad people are trying to stop us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, like the previous guy as well. Yep. Right? Yep. We're, we're on, I'm trying to invest money without, you know, the evil government's trying to stop us. Also, specifically her talking about the dark agenda and the white knights reminds me a lot of what we see in later QAnon theories right. about the black hats and the white hats. Right. So this is sort of like proto-QAnon stuff mm. and also becomes extremely influential in the QAnon community eventually. Right. Of course, there's got to be scam in here. There is a scam. She requests that her supporters send her money mm. and frequent flyer miles. <laughs> okay. Which they did. Now, this one spiraled off into several other conspiracies. Obviously, 9-11 truther conspiracies. Yeah. Of course. But also Illuminati and reptilian conspiracies since those groups were part of the dark agenda. And... Some Nasara influencers started claiming that there were interdimensional and extraterrestrial beings who were working behind the scenes with the White Knights to get Nasara funds released. Mm. So again, we see how these scams kind of hone in on their audience. Because you wouldn't have had that with the fundamentalist Christian right. but community, but you would have it with the New Age community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like an organism, these things mutate and they change and they develop qualities that help them to survive in the information ecosystem. There was very specific arguments. Uh, for example, there was supposed to be an alien named Sananda. Okay. Uh, who was both Jesus and the commander-in-chief of the Ashtar Command Flying Saucer Fleet. Okay. So that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot to unpack. Um, so the Nasara movement quieted down a little bit in like around 2010s because, of course, nobody was getting money. Right. However, it was discovered and absorbed into the QAnon movement. Uh, a, a few months ago on Telegram, an account claiming to be JFK Jr., mm -hmm. who of course was killed in a plane crash back in the 90s, promised that Nassara was about to be enacted 
and that Trump would be sending out millions of dollars to the true believers. Did not but, happen. But would sheepa like us even be allowed into this kind of info? Like, no. If, if, if we got the blinders on. Exactly. We believe all this nonsense from mainstream media. That's right. They would never let us know. We're, we're stuck in the cave. Uh, no, it didn't happen. But I looked at that post on Telegram. Okay. And the comment section of it was filled. And this is, again, where I get, like, genuinely angry. Mm. And, again, where I don't want to let go of the idea of evil, I think, right. in a way. Because the comment section of that post where the person promised that Nassar was about to be released... It was filled with desperate people commenting, saying that they needed the money to buy food for their families or to pay for health care bills. Right. Yeah, sure. And it's just like the, the parasitic nature of these scams. These people are in genuine need of help. Yeah. And rather than trying to figure out how to get help to them, there are people who then are like, well, those are vulnerable people and vulnerability equals victims. And, you know, you're, you're saying about how these people are so victimized. And I think that is fundamentally what has prevented you and I, because we have often considered, you know, like we don't make money off of debunking this stuff. Outside no, we're, of, on, we're Financially, we're on the wrong side of this. Financially, we are not doing well on the side of truth. Although, we, you know, we have a day job, so we're fine. We're it's fine. not like we're hurting or anything. But you sometimes, I sometimes have looked with a jaundiced eye at how easy it would be to make a couple of million or tens of millions of dollars now that we spend so much time thinking about it. Maybe we can let our listeners in on some of the scams we will not do, oh, but yeah. have thought of uh, maybe towards the end. Yeah, but I got one more scam first. Yeah, okay. Chapter four. Chapter four. The Iraqi Dinar. Oh, I've heard of this one. So during the first America-Iraq War in 91, the country of Kuwait had been invaded by Iraq and they had the value of their currency crash yep. because they got invaded. Sure. After the war, the Kuwaiti dinar uh, rebounded while the Iraqi dinar crashed. Okay. And that's because the Iraq army was driven out of Kuwait. I mean, the Kuwait war was a whole thing that we need to do a whole episode on. Before the war, the Iraqi dinar was actually worth a lot. It was worth three American dollars. Whoa. One dinar is worth three American dollars. Okay. That's impressive. After the war, it kind of flips. Now it would cost 3,000 dinars to buy one American dollar. Okay. That's some obscene inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you are ruined. If you have investments in dinars, then like they're worthless. They're, they're totally worthless. Wor it's like after World War One, seeing the, the, you know, the buckets full of Deutschmarks yeah. that'll buy a loaf of bread. Yeah. However, there are plenty of so-called brokers who are more than willing to sell you Iraqi dinar with the promise that it will skyrocket up in value and you'll make a fortune. Right. If it goes back to its like previous state, yeah. if you bought like 3,000 dinars for one American dollar, then it goes back to where it was and now you've got 9,000 American dollars. Yep. However... These aren't really brokers. They're scammers. Okay. Uh, they were pushing for an event called the revaluation. Mm. The great revaluation. Okay. Or in, in Dinarist speak, it's called the RV. Because you say it so often, you need like short, right. short term way of saying it. Also, having a shared language like this, like what does that do to reinforce an in-group? When you've got like kind of secret codes and stuff that you can say to each other and only you know it. 
Well, I don't know. I can't say more than you've just said, which is it reinforces the in-group, right? It reinforces the fact that we are part of a group of people, especially who know something, and then there's the rest of the people out there who don't. And I guess maybe the other thing is that it keeps those other people out. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost like a rite of passage to learn the lingo of this group that you're uh, wanting to be part of. I want to talk about the RV, the revaluation. This is a really common theme that you and I have come across again and again and again when looking at conspiracies and again when looking at cults in particular. It's this idea that an event is coming up that only a few select people know about and it will change everything and set the world right once again. Right. Like, humans have thought this way for thousands of years. We've got, obviously, the rapture is a Christian one. Uh, Fresha Coretti is the Zoroastrian one. Okay. Uh, the storm in QAnon. Right. We just were one day away from one. I keep being told about something called Red October. Okay. Today is October 30th. Whatever it is, it's only got one more day. Oh. Or there will be some elaborate explanation as far yeah, as yeah, why yeah. it didn't okay. happen. But the problem is, one of the many problems, the Iraqi dinar isn't traded as an international currency. You can't just buy it the way that you would buy the Canadian dollar or the British pound or the euro or something. The only way you can invest in them is to physically buy big stacks of them. Okay. And then put them somewhere. Right. The only way, one of the only ways that they can be legally sold is by calling them a souvenir. Uh. So this isn't really like a financial interaction. You're buying literally worthless paper. Right. And people be have bought garage fulls of these things. Because what would also happen is if there were, just imagine, just in... in uh, if the RV happened. If it really did happen, then they would change the... They would change the currency so that precisely like all the this happened. I mean, the same thing in Germany when people actually had notes that were like one million Deutschmark right. notes or 10 million. And that's once getting the, pretty ridiculous. At that right. Point. And then once the currency starts to have value again, you can't have somebody showing up with, <laughs> right. with, 10, rich. with 10 million dollar, you know. Or buckets full of this stuff. Yeah. So that's, because there was so much of it out there. Exactly. So that's just going to, like, they'll just make a new currency. They'll just be like, well, it's now called, well, it might still be called the Iraqi dinar, but now it's like version 2.0 or something. Yeah, and, and you'll have to exchange all the old ones. For, for what the, it's actually worth. Right. You have to bring in your bucket loads of dinars and they give you like two, two. dinars. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that, but, but <laughs> again, you're talking about what happens in real life. So people with these garage fulls of dinars... There's no way to get rid of them except to sell them to other denarians. Mm. And I read an article online which an actual financial expert explained why the dinar would not go up in value. And the message board, which I always go to for my solid information, was filled with people saying that the author would look pretty foolish in 30 days. Okay. Because they're like, 30 days from now, we know, we've been told by our fellow denarians that the dinar is about to be revalued. Everyone who owns them is going to be rich. Everyone who, who like mocked us or who doubted us, they're going to see. They're going to see in 30 days. Now, that article was from 2012. So that brings me to a question. Nathan, how long do you think this kind of postponing the event can go on for before you say, okay, it's, this is not happening? Like, Do you know how QAnon started the first like the, or the second Q post said that Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested. Right. And that was years ago. Yeah. And that's been put off and put off and put off. And as of right now, October 30th, 2022, 
As far as I know, she hasn't been arrested. So is it then almost like with that guy getting arrested for fraud in, in the States, is it almost that it becomes reinforcing? That when it doesn't happen in some bizarre way, it actually makes you double down again yeah. and be like, no, no, it must be coming because it didn't come last time. Well, all of these scams are kind of based on the idea that the world is crooked. Mm. And there's a few advantages to basing your scam on the idea that the world is crooked. Advantage one, the world is crooked. Right. So, so, so right away. data to point to. Yeah. So right away, somebody's like, the world is crooked. You're like, okay, go on. Mm. I agree. The problem, of course, is all these scams don't make the world less crooked. They're just <laughs> making it more crooked. And the other thing is, because you're starting with the assumption that the world is crooked, when things don't go well, when things don't go right, if you have this Manichaean worldview, the dark agenda has influenced this. Okay. The, the black hats have, have messed with it. So it's non-falsifiable. Like you're never going to get a datum in experience that says, no, you are wrong. You've, you've gotten the wrong idea here. Yeah, that's the problem. And trying to convince people that they have gotten the wrong idea, then they fall into sunk cost fallacy. People dig their heels in. Here, hold on. Let me check and see how my scam is oh, going. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been an hour. She must be wondering. Oh, boy. She wants me to register. She sent me a link. She wants me to register for the company. She asked me if I have registered for the company. She wants to see a screenshot of me <laughs> registering the company. Whoa. And then she just started again with, hello there. <laughs> if you were to say to her last post which is hello there mm -hmm. if you were to just start again with hello hello exclamation mark <laughs> we'll see how that goes <laughs> oh boy we need vacations <laughs> all right so i mean there's an example of what you're talking about right there all these people were so certain that 30 days it was yeah. going to be revalued to the point where they were publicly like mocking this author, being like, oh, you know, you say the Iraqi Daenerys won't do this? Well, we'll show you in 30 days, in 2012, right. 10 years ago, which, of course, it didn't happen. The RV has not happened. No. People are still waiting. And I still come across videos that promise that the dinar is going to make everyone rich any day now. Hmm. Any day now. Right. It's always, oh, they're starting to release this, or they're starting to release that, or this, or that, and nothing ever comes of it. Yeah. And in the meantime, these scammers are selling dinar. Right. And taking, like, a big cut of the money, so you're not even getting your full value of these worthless dinar. Right. So, like the Nassara scam, the dinar scam is embraced by fans of Donald Trump, and it ends up getting folded into the larger conspiracy framework that surrounded his more rabid fan base. So... Like, is this even possible? It, it, it isn't. Like, financially, according to Forbes magazine, by 2014, there were about 40 trillion dinars in circulation. 40 trillion. If the Great Revaluation, or RV, if it really occurred, that would basically double the amount of money that existed in the world. So, this brings us to chapter five. Okay. One question I often get as a conspiracy researcher, and I bet you've had this one too, What's wrong with believing a few incorrect theories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. You know, oh. it's fun to believe the world is flat. Sure. And I think we would argue that depending on the content of those theories, there could be a great deal wrong with it. Yep. We've seen where some of these theories can go. Yeah. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yeah. Which leads to the Holocaust. Like, there are conspiracy theories that, because of their content, are dangerous yeah. to 
to human life. But also in general, I, I would say there's an issue with being gullible enough to believe far-out ideas without proof. Hmm. And that is, it makes you more vulnerable to scams and con men, which is why the scam, like the scammers and con men love the conspiracy communities. So you're suggesting there's almost, uh, if you go to certain types of conspiracy communities, maybe the ones with really outrageous claims, lizard people, QAnon, etc., then what you're essentially getting is a self-selected group of highly gullible people who are willing to believe stuff without a lot of evidence. Yeah. Which seems like a perfect place to go fishing for victims of a financial scam. And this is why my alter ego, who is sort of wading into these waters yeah. of, of things like Queen Didillo or QAnon or like any of these other like really, really uh, far out conspiracy claims... As soon as I wade into those waters, my legs are covered in leeches. No. Like, no exaggeration. You get pounced on immediately. Right. With people who are trying to appeal to your sense of something being wrong in the world. Right. And this is, again, what makes me so frustrated is because there are so many things wrong with the world. There are so many things crooked about our systems. Mm. But to take advantage of that by just making things a little bit crookeder, it... It, it like it makes me feel what's that emotion that you people have where you're like it, it, you get like a surge of energy but it's sort of like a hostile energy oh that's righteous anger that's the one i feel that yeah yeah that's a dangerous one too because it is. it's the one that'll get you motivated to do things even regular old anger won't with oh, righteous boy. anger you can do no wrong uh oh until you come down and you realize that i've done wrong you're in big trouble oh, okay <laughs> so then that is sort of the reason why even though we could make more money on the scammer side. And we have thought of some scams. Yeah, let's... So if this is chapter six, or is it chapter five? Chapter six. Chapter six. Can this is a new thing, by the way. I don't know if we'll ever no, no, do no, chapters again. No, 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 I don't think again, this but... is going to stick, but yeah. uh, can we add an appendix? Appendix which, one. Sort of over the years, as we have done this research, it has occasionally occurred to me, especially when there's something I couldn't afford to buy... <laughs> That it was really annoying, you know, how much money people who were clearly flogging garbage were making. And here are Nathan and I, of course, we don't have commercials on our podcast. And, you know, we don't make any money off of this. We do it for, God, this is going to sound Love of pompous. the game. Yeah. Love of the game is better than love of truth, which is where I was going. But it has occurred to us occasionally. I think the time when I really kind of lost it was when I looked into what Alex Jones was making, flogging, all this kind of stuff that he knew was complete nonsense. Manhood supplements. Yeah, okay. And um, I was like, man, you know, we could actually, now having done this research and having looked at which scams worked and failed, we could run some pretty solid scams. Now, the thing that prevents Nathan and I from doing this is I think that moment you talked about earlier where... There are real victims there. Yep. I just want to relate to other human beings in a way in which I'm not fundamentally taking advantage of them. You don't want to be a tongueless. You not, want to be a goby. Yes. Or a pistol shrimp. Exactly. I want to have that relationship with my ocean fellows instead of eating out their tongues so that I can get a little... But okay, that's our ethical high ground. If we were to sin and err and, and, and be mean people... Uh, you have a specific scam that I thought was quite clever about pets. 
Oh, yes, but actually I can't take credit for this one, tragically. This was something that had been done on the internet earlier. I just Surely thought it was, all of these scams. I, I just thought it was brilliant. Okay. Rapture pet insurance. Okay, well, so explain. So if you think you're going to get raptured, you know your pets aren't going to get raptured. So like you're going to get sucked up into the sky and your pets are going to be locked at home. Yeah. So you paid this group like... $15. Of, and it's a group of like known atheists yeah, and they, who are not going to heaven. Like, yeah, they, they say we will specifically, like we have sinned, we're, we're not we're we not getting it. We will not get raptured. We'll stay here. Yeah. And they will look after your dog and cat. Right. Or a parrot or what have you. Right. And that was brilliant. That one was brilliant. Um, but I, I can think of some original ones. I mean, right. I, again, they've probably already been done. Something to do with perhaps alien urine. Okay. Like selling it. Yeah, selling alien urine through the mail. Um, Would this amount to mail fraud? we got to be careful. We don't want to actually go to prison. Right. Like, if we got caught, mm -hmm. it would have to be the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, of course I sent him alien urine in the mail. And it should be okay. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on your definition <laughs> of alien. Right. <laughs> like, occasionally I go to other countries. Right. In which case, I am an alien in those countries. Right, right, right. I mean, sometimes So you're I, selling your own urine. Yeah, that's, of, of course. That's, who else <laughs> oh, do I have access to? Uh, sometimes I feel alienated from society in oh, general. Oh, yeah, okay. And as one who is alienated, I think that makes my urine alien urine. Okay. So you could sell stuff. Yeah. Like, and it would say, do not consume. Right. Obviously. Unless somewhere. you want to. Yeah, I mean, that's your business. <laughs> I got one. Uh, it goes, it's similar to the pet insurance in that it um, focuses on kind of millennialists, people who are expecting a grand finale of, of everything. Uh, so not and millennials, millennialists. Exactly, like the, yep. the, the rapture folk. Yep. And, or, or also the doomsdayers in cults. Yep. Actually, I was thinking more along dooms, like cult doomsdayers. Okay. And so they've publicly given their end time um, prediction, yep. which is in six months or whatever. Classic and, rookie mistake for a cult, by the way. Right. And you create a, a real estate and asset management firm that comes and buys their assets. Because now they can live in them up until rapture day. Right. For free, even. For free. Yeah. And we'll buy their stuff for a massive discount. Yeah. Because who cares? What does it matter? We're yeah. buying it right now. I'll give you $15,000 for everything your own, house, car, whatever. You can keep it all till rapture day. That's yours. And that's it. That's and, then I, and then I own stuff. Nice. Stuff upon stuff, which I then, as soon as the rapture, like the, in the clause, it's written that as of rapture day... And that's not the actual rapture. It's the day that your cult believes that the rapture is happening. Right. As of that day, it actually becomes mine, and then I can sell it. Ah, uh, but we're not going to do any of these things. No, we're not, because we're nice people. Right, because we don't want or, to be or, No, actually, I'm not even a nice person. I'm just not willing to be that bad. Yeah.